What is going on in Ukraine? For the past month, we've been bombarded nonstop with videos, articles, and photos depicting a war-torn country decimated by the evil Russian army seeking to expand its borders onto a sovereign nation. All throughout Western media, we see thousands upon thousands fleeing Ukraine into Poland and other nearby countries. Even the White House has announced that in the United States, we will be accepting up to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. But this conflict did not start this year or even in the February 24th Russian invasion of Ukraine. In fact, some of the roots of this conflict can be traced back to 1954, with tensions boiling up heavily since the 2014 Maidan coup in Ukraine. But before we can begin on the conflict today, we're gonna have to brush up on our Ukrainian history, since every step since then has led to this moment. The land that is now Ukraine was previously held under the Polish-Lithuanian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and of course, the Russian Empire. Needless to say, this land and its people through time have seen much war and power struggles over it. Back in the 9th century, much of modern Ukrainian land was known as Kievan Rus, the land of Ruthenian people. Rus was a loose federation of Eastern Slavic tribes. Their descendants today are mostly Belarusians, Ukrainians, and Russians. Kievan Rus was founded by Oleg of Novgorod, Novgorod being the oldest city today in Russia. But Kiev was the center of Kievan Rus, and it was held under the Rurik dynasty. Kievan Rus came to its death when the Mongols invaded Rus. In fact, Kiev was burned down twice by the Mongols. Later in the 15th century, Muscovites began reclaiming parts of former Kievan Rus, though mostly in the east, while in the western part of what is now western Belarus and western Ukraine, these parts were then engulfed by the Polish-Lithuanian Empire. A Ukrainian state emerged following the 1917 Russian Revolution, when the Bolsheviks declared that all the formerly held colonies of the Tsardom to be free to self-determination. Following this, there was much political struggle between various groups for power. Socialists, anarchists, tribal chiefs, and monarchists all competed for power in the short-lived Ukrainian People's Republic. The fighting resulted in a five-year-long civil war that ended in 1921, with the Ukrainian Bolsheviks winning and Ukraine becoming a founding state of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. In constructing what would be Ukraine, the process was difficult. What became Eastern Ukraine, or known as Donbass, originally wanted to be their own republic. Through compromise, they accepted to join Ukraine, despite being a region of an ethnic Russian majority. But finally, for the first time in its long, turbulent history, this is when Ukraine became a nation-state. The Soviets set up a policy of Ukrainianization, or coronization, to unite all the different sub-tribes and promote ethnic Ukrainians to positions of power, attempting to reconcile from the Russian Tsar's previous ethnic violence against Ukrainians. But the Ukrainian people would once again find war on their lands when the German Operation Barbarossa invaded Soviet territory in 1941 and took Ukrainian and Belarusian land. Hitler's plans were to starve out and kill the Soviet people under his larger plan to exterminate ethnic Slavs. But despite his disdain for Slavs, it did not stop Slavic nationalists and anti-communists from uniting and collaborating with the fascists. In fact, in parts of Western Ukraine, like Ternopil, the German Nazi army was celebrated by locals. Thousands of young men signed up to support the German-installed occupational government. The Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists was set up in 1929 in Vienna, and when the Nazis invaded Soviet Ukraine, 
They wasted no time to declare independence from the USSR and to pledge loyalty to Hitler. The OUNB, under the orders of Stepan Bandera, carried out one of the worst atrocities committed in the Holocaust in Kiev. It is known as the Babi Yar Massacre, when the OUNB, Ukrainian nationalists, in conjunction with the German fascist occupiers, killed nearly 40,000 Ukrainian Jews in just two days. The OUN would go on later to kill another 150,000 Jews, Romas, Polish people, and communists in the effort of creating their pure Ukrainian nationalist state. The Battle of Stalingrad was a turning point for World War II and it marked the gradual end of Germany's success. I will add that as many Ukrainian fascist collaborators there were, the vast majority of Ukrainian combatants were in the Red Army. And slowly but surely, they fought the Germans back all the way to Berlin and liberated concentration and death camps along the way, like Auschwitz. The Red Army stormed and took Berlin and thus ended the reign of terror of the Third Reich. But the Ukrainian nationalists would continue to fight in Western Ukraine until their eventual defeat in 1958. In 1954, nearly 10 years after World War II ended, General Secretary Khrushchev, a Ukrainian himself, would give the Crimean Peninsula to Ukraine and add it as a part of Ukrainian territory. This was controversial even at its time, first because Crimea had been a part of Russian territory for 171 years. Catherine the Great spilled much Russian blood fighting the Ottomans for this territory, which gave Russia access to the sea to reach Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. Additionally, there were some qualms about the legality of Khrushchev even being allowed to do this, but nonetheless, Crimea remained as a part of Ukrainian territory but it was disputed since its inception. In the 1991 counter-revolution against the USSR, Ukraine was formed and they dissolved their socialist policies, rapidly sending the country into devastation. Ukraine lost 60% of its GDP and sex trafficking, corruption, and the mafia quickly went to work to capitalize on this difficult moment. And unlike Russia and Belarus, Ukraine really never found any sort of stability after leaving the USSR. The 1994 Budapest Memorandum signed with Russia, the United States, and other post-Soviet diplomats sealed that the North American Treaty Organization, or NATO, would not move any eastward from Germany. NATO is a military alliance of the US, Canada, and Western Europe that was created directly to target the Soviet Union. But nowadays, it serves as the West military police around the globe. The Budapest Memorandum also guaranteed that Ukraine would give up its full nuclear capabilities gained from the USSR, and in exchange, no country would try to economically subdue or interfere with Ukrainian territory. This was all fine and dandy until two years later when US President Bill Clinton made NATO expansion a key part of his foreign policy. So unable to reach peace and economic stability, Ukrainians grew anxious for the 2004 elections that would bring about a new president. The second round of the 2004 Ukrainian elections saw candidate Viktor Yanukovych of the Party of Regions, which was the illiberal center incumbent party, and Viktor Yushchenko of the right-wing Our Ukraine Party. Yanukovych staunchly opposed Ukraine joining NATO and was seen as pro-Russian for it. Yushchenko expressed anti-Russian rhetoric and a turn to the West. At first, Yanukovych was declared the winner and it ignited protests throughout Kiev and in West Ukraine, calling out fraud and for new elections. People poured onto the streets adorning Ukrainian national symbols and the color orange, which was the color of the Our Ukraine Party. This is what gave the protests its name, the Orange Revolution, 
which has been seen as a color revolution as the US and Europe largely supported a Yushchenko victory and even funded pro-Yushchenko groups. In other Ukraine news, the Associated Press is reporting the Bush administration spent more than $65 million over the past two years in the lead-up to last month's election in the Ukraine. So after a second try at the second round of the elections, the results came in with the 52% Yushchenko victory, leaving the Orange Revolution to be successful. An important point to note, as aforementioned, Western and Eastern Ukraine having distinct developments also led to their political tendencies to be different. This can be compared to the United States, where the Northern and coastal states vote more liberal while the Southern and middle sector of the country tend to vote more conservative. But just like in the US, of course, there are leftists in Western Ukraine and right-wingers in Eastern Ukraine. However, the East of the country is far more pro-Soviet, pro-socialist, and seeks positive relations with Russia, while the western part of the country is much more anti-Soviet, anti-communist, and Russian antagonistic. We get this from voter data directly. Additionally, central and eastern Ukraine and Crimea are predominantly Russian-speaking and ethnic Russian, while the western part of the country is majorly ethnic Ukrainian and they speak the Ukrainian language. As a result, Yanukovych found a large voter base in eastern and central Ukraine and Crimea while Yushchenko had support in parts of central and western Ukraine. Yushchenko, however, quickly became unpopular and his party drastically lost seats in the next parliamentary election. His party co-founder, Yulia Tymoshenko, one of Ukraine's richest people and a far-right Ukrainian nationalist, was later dismissed as prime minister by Yushchenko for allegedly serving the interests of her own business. This administration was muddled with corruption scandals and fraud. Yushchenko also took out loans from the International Monetary Fund or the IMF for development, which of course in turn the IMF gave out under the conditions of oversight on Ukrainian spending. To put this simply, the IMF would give out loans to develop the country's infrastructure to boost the economy. But in turn, Ukraine must cut back massively on sectors the IMF deems inessential for repayment. The primary cuts seen by governments with IMF loans are funding to the public sector, like healthcare, schools, welfare programs, pensions, and so forth. This is called austerity, and it has seen massive pushback in countries like Greece, Argentina, and Ecuador. Leading up to the 2010 presidential elections, according to the FOM Ukraine, Yushchenko left his presidency with just a 7% approval rating. But before seeing himself out, Yushchenko gave out the Hero of Ukraine award to Stepan Bandera. If you remember from earlier, Stepan Bandera was the leader of the OUNB that slaughtered tens of thousands of Ukrainian Jews and Polish people in collaboration with the German Nazis. Yushchenko gave his final ode and nod to the same Ukrainian Nazis that organized the protests to help him get in power during the Orange Revolution. In 2010, once again Yanukovych gave his shot at the presidency, but this time his main opposition was Yulia Tymoshenko, the formerly dismissed prime minister and businesswoman. The race was cut close but resulted in a Yanukovych victory, this time uncontested. Yanukovych reversed the Hero of Ukraine award to Stepan Bandera. His foreign policy was very neutral. He opposed Ukraine joining NATO, but he also opposed Ukraine joining the Eurasian Collective Security Treaty Organization, or in shorter terms, the CSTO Military Alliance led by Russia. He stated that Ukraine will do business with both Europe and Russia and would want to join the European Union. Yanukovych also increased funding to pensioners and welfare programs, 
all the while raising the minimum wage. These policies led to a backlash from the IMF, but Yanukovych stood by his policies. The Communist Party of Ukraine ended up joining in a coalition in parliament with Yanukovych's Party of Regents. Yanukovych also made comments about wanting Russian to be a secondary official language in Ukraine as it posed problems in official institutions where documents were only in Ukrainian when more than half of the country only spoke Russian. As expressed before, Yanukovych initially did want Ukraine to join the European Union. However, after meeting with German Prime Minister Angela Merkel, he decided against it. He said that the conditions the EU gave to Ukraine to join were to cut back on social spending and wages for loans of development, essentially austerity programs. He also stated that the Eurasian trade union's policies were much more lenient on Ukraine's sovereignty of spending. This ultimately ignited the most recent pivotal moment of Ukrainian history, the Euromaidan color revolution. Protesters flooded Maidan Nezalezhnosti, the main square in Kiev, calling Yanukovych a Russian puppet and denouncing his decision to join the Eurasian trade union. Many grievances that sparked the protests are very real, they're not fiction. Ukraine had been a country long never finding its grip onto political and economic stability and many Ukrainians were finding it difficult to make ends meet. Yanukovych's administration was too mired with rampant corruption and many of Ukrainian institutions were at the knees of oligarchs, although that remains to be true to this day. That being said, groups funded by the CIA front group, the National Endowment for Democracy, and Ukrainian Nazis once again capitalized and co-opted on this moment of upheaval full force. In fact, the NED announced prior to Maidan that Ukraine is the biggest prize in the new Cold War between the US and Russia. They were gunning for power, and this time they had a cover to go all out. The Maidan protests were initially peaceful and sparked little to no pushback from authorities, and when all had seemingly appeared as if it was going to die out, the police fired on the protesters. The pro-Western forces used this as a moment to call for the removal of Yanukovych's administration for violating human rights. The pro-Yanukovych forces claimed that Ukrainian Nazis hid in the crowds and shot at the police to get the police to shoot back at civilians. Whatever the truth may be, I have a feeling we're going to find out very soon. But nonetheless, the police fired on the protesters and several were killed. This pushed the dying out protests into a full-on, violent revolution against Ukrainian authorities. International diplomats rushed in to observe and maintain peace. Famously, the then U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland was spotted handing out cookies to anti-government protesters in Ukraine and showing them support, a move seen as incredibly hostile to the government of a sovereign country. Imagine if Putin had given out cookies to the January 6th Capitol riot protesters. The Russiagate hysteria would have exploded tenfold. But most egregiously, a call between Victoria Nuland and U.S. Ambassador to Kiev Jeffrey Pyatt was intercepted and leaked, in which Nuland can be heard quite literally handpicking the next leaders of Ukraine post-regime change. Well, in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking, in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Bok and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I'm I, kinda... I, I, I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level... Working for Yatsenyuk, it's just not going to work.
Yeah. Even pro-Western magazines like Foreign Policy and The Times were forced to admit the role of neo-Nazi groups like the Svoboda Party and its arm, the right sector, with others were being part and parcel of bringing about the coup in Ukraine. In the US, this color revolution was painted as a restoration of democracy. Former IDF soldier and cinematographer Evgeny Afpinevsky's Winter on Fire, a pro-Maidan documentary, even received Academy Award nominations. In fact, Maidan was extremely successful for US interests in Ukraine. The US Cold War on Russia has increasingly been attempting to orchestrate color revolutions and hostile governments in the countries surrounding Russia. Even NATO has been encroaching closer to the Russian borders, violating the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. And even in Russia itself, the US has been funding and supporting minor oppositional leaders like nationalist Alexei Navalny, who wants to pivot Russia to the West, Despite that one of the largest opposition parties to Russian President Vladimir Putin is the Communist Party of the Russian Federation. The US color revolution in Ukraine ushered a new reign of terror and the re-emergence of the Ukrainian far right. Remember the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists? Well, those guys never went away. Many of them escaped in refugee camps and were later immigrated into the United States, Canada, and Western Europe. Let's take, for example, Foreign Affairs Minister of Canada, Christia Freeland. Through the Ukrainian archival records in Alberta, Canada, it was revealed that her grandfather, Michael Chomya, was the editor of a Ukrainian Nazi newspaper that espoused loyalty to Hitler and called for the execution of Jews. The Simon Wiesenthal Center estimates that 2,000 Ukrainian Nazis and collaborators immigrated into Canada alone, many of them war criminals escaping the Nuremberg trials. Although this number may seem insignificant, considering that the granddaughter of one of these Ukrainian Nazis now sits to make the foreign affairs of one of the world's most influential countries, this is only touching the surface of Ukrainian fascist influence. In Ukraine, their ideology remained dormant until called upon and during the Maidan coup where they seized power. In February 2014, Yanukovych and his administrative officials fled Ukraine for their safety and subsequently he was removed from power. Some sources say he resigned, others say he was impeached. However, Yanukovych states himself on Oliver Stone's 2016 documentary, Ukraine on Fire, that he never resigned and no constitutionally dictated process of impeachment was ever carried out, calling himself a president in exile. Thus, Maidan was a coup. As soon as Yanukovych fled, the nationalist inheritors of Ukraine immediately went on to their work on their campaign of decommunization. Anti-communism is the foremost priority for fascists. They began by destroying statues of Bolshevik Vladimir Lenin, even passing a law of decommunization that banned three communist parties and made support for communism illegal in Ukraine. It is important to note that these policies were not popular. They were extremely controversial and only allowed to happen because of those who came to power. In places like Kyrgyzstan, these statues were even rebuilt by some of the local governments because of mass riots against these policies. These were the decisions made by the far-right nationalists and their allies that saw much pushback from central and eastern regions where the Communist Party and Yanukovych's party held a majority support, especially in the Crimean Peninsula. Ethnic Russians make up the vast majority of Crimea, being twice as many as ethnic Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars combined. With the calling of ethnic cleansing of Russians by the new political powers, just several weeks after the coup was carried out, Crimeans held a referendum asking if they would like to join Russia as a federal subject or fully recognize Crimea as a part of Ukraine. With 83% voter turnout, 96 voted to rejoin Russia. As aforementioned, 
Catherine the Great spilled much Russian blood to take Crimea from the Ottomans, as it provided Russia with more feasible trading routes. With Crimea under a hostile Ukrainian government, this posed an economic threat to Russian interests. And so with that, Putin agreed to annex Crimea to the Russian Federation. This sparked international outrage from Maidan supporters and their Western allies, a move they claim proved so-called Russian imperialism. The Maidan government denounced the vote as undemocratic and fraudulent. However, in 2008, the Ukrainian Center for Economic and Political Studies found that 64% of Crimeans, including 55% of ethnic Ukrainians, supported Crimea seceding from Ukraine and joining Russia. In 2013, the Kiev International Institute of Sociology reported that 41% of Crimeans supported all of Ukraine uniting as a Russian federal subject. Despite claims of fraudulent elections, it is clear that even well before Maidan, even before Yanukovych's presidency, most Crimeans were in favor of integration with Russia. In the days leading up to the Crimean referendum, in the coastal city of Odessa, thousands marched with Russian and Odessan flags, calling the new government in Kiev illegitimate and said that it was dividing the country. It appeared that Odessa may soon follow suit with Russian annexation with Crimea. So with that, thousands of Ukrainian nationalists and paramilitaries like the right sector flocked to the city and clashed with the anti-Maidan protests. The new interim coup government also set out on a witch hunt against the protesters who opposed the new government. The tensions in Odessa came to a head when on May 2nd, after organizing an International Workers' Day march that was met with Nazi attacks, once again the fascists and the anti-Maidan protesters would meet, this time ending in tragedy. The fascists organized a Ukrainian unity parade while the opposing forces held anti-fascist rallies in response. The fascists and the anti-fascists alike found themselves engaged in physical attacks with clubs and rocks. Eventually, shots are fired, and the first fatality of the evening would claim the life of one of the Ukrainian fascists. The Ukrainian fascists and the paramilitaries then burned down the anti-fascist encampment in the Kolikovo Square, leaving the anti-fascists to have to hide in the Odessa House of Trade Unions. Soon enough, the fascists began shooting at the windows and throwing Molotov cocktails inside, and the building was soon engulfed with flames. People were jumping out of the windows to survive, but sadly, some of those who made it out were then beaten to death. The massacre would claim the lives of 48 anti-fascists and socialists in the Soviet hero city, including 17-year-old boy Vadim Papura, who was beaten to death by the Nazis. 74-year-old Svetlana Vakomovich survived the attack, and she believes the fascists may have used chemical weapons. While an investigation was opened up into the event, to this day, nobody has been charged for the massacre, despite video evidence of the perpetrators' faces and actions even on YouTube. So less than two weeks after the Odessa massacre and the Nazi violence in Mariupol, the eastern cities of Donetsk and Lugansk, together making up the region of Donbass, each held their own referendums on the heels of the fascist attacks. In the months leading up to the referendum, the Maidan government sent Ukrainian troops to attack dissidents of the new government, but to no avail. On May 11, 2014, the day of the Donetsk and Lugansk referendums, the Washington Post conducted its own poll where they found that 94% of voters supported independence. The poll also reported that of those who were not planning on voting, 65% supported independence from Ukraine. In the final result, with 75% of voter turnout, both Donetsk and Lugansk votes came at a majority to secede from Ukraine 
and thus were established the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic. Its new leaders declared that they will be independent until the fascists in Kiev resigned. At the time, Russian President Putin announced that Russia will not be annexing the territories and advocated that the LPR and DPR leaders work towards a peace agreement with the coup government in Kiev. Pro-Maidan dissident forces once again claimed that this vote was fraudulent and even held a counter-referendum asking locals in towns bordering Donetsk if they would like to leave Ukraine as well. 62% voted to remain as a part of Ukraine, only 27% voted to leave. Additionally, according to the Ukrainian constitution, local authorities are not legally permitted to hold such a referendum. Such a referendum would have to be put to a national vote and thus Kiev refused to recognize the DPR and LPR. However, a similar process occurred in Kosovo, which its independence was hailed as legitimate by NATO countries despite Serbia's claims of it being illegal. The new government in Donbass ordered the immediate removal of the Ukrainian military from their territory. Otherwise, Ukrainian troops will be seen as invading occupiers and be treated accordingly. On May 2nd, after both the DPR and LPR forces refused to stand down, the Ukrainian army attacked, beginning the Ukrainian Civil War. Western media have reported this as a Russia-Ukraine conflict, being that the DPR and LPR border Russia and they have received weapons from Russia to defend themselves. The DPR and LPR are continuously named the Russian separatist or the Russian-backed separatist in Western and Ukrainian media, chiefly done to confuse both the Ukrainian and Western people. Ukrainians have become convinced that their country has been at war with Russia since 2014. Ukrainian politicians and nationalists highlight the existence of Russian troops in Donbass fighting the Ukrainian army as evidence that Russia has already engaged in a military invasion of Ukraine and that the war on Donbass is not a civil war. However, in November of 2021, Ukraine's commander-in-chief of the armed forces, Valery Zaluzhny, wrote on Facebook that just 5% of military personnel in the Donbass people's militias are Russian soldiers. Putin has emphasized that the existence of Russian soldiers in Donbass was their individual decision to volunteer and not a military order from any Russian official. It is comparable to the thousands of US and British soldiers in private militias like Blackwater that attempted to overthrow the Venezuelan government in 2020 and were arrested despite Washington's claims that they were not ordered by any U.S. official to engage in armed surgency in Venezuela. The civil war for Donbass has immensely devastated Ukraine's economy and social life. 2.7 million people were made refugees by the war, fleeing shelling and bomb attacks on daily life in the city centers of Donetsk and Lugansk. Eager to carry out their mission of cleansing ethnic Russians from Ukraine, the neo-Nazi paramilitary Azov Battalion was integrated into the Ukrainian army. They infested coastal cities like Mariupol and Odessa, where we are seeing much of the armed fighting taking place today. Since the start of the war, the United States and Western Europe has funneled billions into the Ukrainian government, with weapons falling into the hands of neo-Nazi paramilitaries like the Azov Battalion and Right Sector. Even Israel has been exposed for training and arming Ukrainian Nazis in their war on Donbass, the same political descendants who committed atrocities during the Holocaust. The war on Donbass and the West's continual funding to support and prolong the conflict has resulted in Ukrainians being used as cannon fodder. In Ukraine, military service is compulsory. Thus, this country saw a mass exodus of not only those living along the battle lines, but young men who did not want to be forced into a war with their own people. 7.5 million Ukrainians have fled since the civil war broke out. Those of the working class found refuge in nearby countries like Lithuania, Poland, and even Russia, while those with more financial capabilities made it to Western Europe and North America. Of course, with declining economic conditions and war, 
Life expectancy in Ukraine has sadly declined as well. Ukraine has been suffering the ills of US imperialism for a long time in its history, first being an adversary when part of the Soviet Union, to having its government overthrown, and eventually a proxy war within the country. In 2015, an attempt at a peaceful solution of the conflict took place in neighboring Belarus. The document has been named the Minsk Accords, signed by both Donbass and Ukrainian authorities, calling for a ceasefire and for peace. The Accords also attempted to bring back the independent republics into Ukraine as autonomous republics, guaranteeing them a level of sovereignty from the Kiev government. However, the Ukrainian Nazis, who played a crucial role in this war and the coup, were adamantly against this and sabotaged all attempts of a ceasefire by firing on Donbass, thus restarting the war. Both the UN and Amnesty International, a Western organization that functions as a US imperialist watch group, even acknowledge that acts of torture on civilians have taken place. I will not include it, but there are photos and videos online depicting Ukrainian soldiers hanging a Russian-speaking pregnant woman and her DPR soldier husband. Locals in Donbass have stated that the Ukrainian army is relentless in their war against them, stating that they believe the Ukrainian army wants to exterminate them. After having been exposed for profiteering from the war on Donbass and having a chocolate factory in Russia, and civilians exhausted of more death and war, the coup government of Petro Poroshenko finally ended. But his successor was not much better. In 2019, comedian and star of the popular Ukrainian show Servant of the People announced his bid for the presidential seat. They say life imitates art, and Zelensky was going to prove that although he had no political experience, his role in acting as a Ukrainian president on his show was enough to prepare him for the daunting task. He ran on a campaign of economic revitalization, to join the EU, and especially to end the war on Donbass and normalize relationships with Russia. With this platform, he was able to secure his role as the head of state, even stating that he was prepared to give up his position as long as peace arrives. Zelensky at least did try to make good on his promise. In 2019, he went to the east and spoke in front of a group of soldiers in Zolot, pleading with them to not fire on the Donbass soldiers. He was met with fierce defiance. Neo-Nazi Andrei Bilitsky warned Zelensky to go back to Kiev and mind his business or he would send soldiers to confront him there. After Zelensky's inaugural address, when he vowed to make peace and end the war, Right sector leader Dmitro Yarosh responded that Zelensky will hang on some tree in Kreshatik if he betrays Ukraine and those people who died in the revolution and war. 
Zelensky, as the artist as he is, painted himself as a pioneer who was going to trailblaze Ukraine into economic prosperity and finally end the corruption and the oligarch's grip on Ukraine. This image was further strengthened when it was revealed that President Donald Trump asked Zelensky to investigate Hunter Biden's affairs in Ukraine. Republicans were able to obtain Hunter Biden's laptop drive where suspicious emails of his financial dealings as the head of Burisma, a major Ukrainian gas company, were found. Originally deemed fake Russian disinformation by Russiagate journalists, today these emails have proven to be legitimate. Hunter Biden was up to suspicious activity in Ukraine and it remains a mystery how he became the head of such a company without any previous experience in the industry. Could it have anything to do with his father, Joe Biden, playing a major role in the Maidan coup? Joe Biden even publicly stating and laughing that he appointed officials and had them removed at his will. I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan here. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They walked out to press conference. Said, "Nah." I said, "I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said, call him." I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, "You're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here." And I think it was about six hours. I looked. I said, "We're leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money." Oh, son of a bitch! <laughs> Got fired, and they put in place someone who was solid. Let's let you decide, but after Zelensky failed to follow up with Trump's request, Ukrainians were convinced that Zelensky was not a leader that could be bought and sold. Well, the truth is that Trump could not buy Zelensky because he was already purchased. In October 2021, Zelensky's name appeared in the Pandora Papers alongside his good buddy, Igor Kolomoisky. Kolomoisky is a Jewish-Ukrainian-Israeli business oligarch, rated as the second and sometimes third richest person in Ukraine. He's also Zelensky's top financial backer. Zelensky came under Kolomoisky's orbit as his show, Servants of the People, was broadcasted on a channel owned by Kolomoisky. Kolomoisky was exposed for greatly funding Ukrainian Nazi paramilitaries like the Right Sector, Dnepro, and Idar battalions groups that were key in the Maidan coup and the war in Donbass. Kolomoisky returned to Ukraine after a self-imposed exile to support and fund Zelensky's presidential campaign. But giving him the benefit of the doubt, perhaps Zelensky truly did want peace and an end to the war, but he quickly capitulated on that promise and surrendered his country to the Ukrainian far right. The war on Donbass created 2.7 million refugees of the region. It also claimed the lives of 14,000 civilians 80% of them caused by Ukrainian army attacks. The war on Donbass and the crime against their civilians was met with international silence, only being financially supported by Russia. In 2021, after the inauguration of Joe Biden, Zelensky banned three media networks on the basis of being pro-Russian, essentially censoring dissident media. At no point did Zelensky silence or suppress Nazi groups that were unleashing havoc on dissidents, such as the time that the fascists shot at the oppositional leader Viktor Medvedchuk's house. Zelensky has been seen and photographed talking with leaders of far-right groups and saying nothing of their political intimidation and attacks. Capitulating fully to the far-right, in 2021, Zelensky sent more troops along the Russian border and of course the border with Donbass, who were already engaged in armed attacks. Subsequently, Zelensky increased his urges for Ukraine to join NATO, a crucial sticking point for Russia. Russian President Putin has insisted over the years 
that should Ukraine change its neutral status on NATO, this would force action to be taken by Russia as they see NATO as a major security threat. Ignoring Putin's appeals that Ukraine must not join NATO, the US and Europe fed Zelensky a dream that Ukraine could possibly join NATO and that should Russia attack, the US and Europe will defend Ukraine fully. This all came to a boil when on February 19th, Zelensky stated on television that he will even reconsider Ukraine's role in the Budapest memorandums, hinting that Ukraine may seek to regain nuclear capabilities. But with increased fascist attacks on the people of Donbass, more soldiers on the Russian border, increased Western funding, following two Western manufactured color revolutions in neighboring Belarus in 2020, and potentially Kazakhstan in 2021, the desperate attempt for Ukraine to join NATO, Ukraine claiming they will retake Crimea, and finally, for Ukraine to possibly become a nuclear state? Russia had had enough with the taunts and attacks on their own national security, and after eight years of the conflict, and failed peace resolutions, the Russian military invaded Ukraine on the wee mornings of February 24th, 2022. The invasion came on the heels of when Russia finally recognized the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic and claimed the invasion was to stop the genocide against the Donbass people, very reminiscent of NATO's claims when they bombed Serbia in defense of Bosniaks. With the Russian invasion, we're seeing previously held masks about Ukraine slowly slip away. journalist, uh, uh, Я маю бути об'єктивним, маю бути виваженим для того, щоб повідомляти вам інформацію з холодним серцем, але направду триматися зараз дуже важко, особливо в такий час. І якраз уже нас на Росії називають нацистами, фашистами і так далі. Я дозволю собі зацитувати слова Адольфа Ейхмана який сказав, що для того, щоб знищити націю, потрібно нищити в першу чергу дітей. Тому що вбиваючи їхніх батьків, діти виростуть і обов'язково помстяться. Вбиваючи дітей, вони ніколи не виростуть і нація зникне. Як Збройні сили України не можуть нищити російських дітей, тому що це заборонено правилами війни і це заборонено різними конвенціями, в тому числі Женевськими. Але я не зі Збройних сил України. І коли мені випаде нагода розправитися з росіянами, я обов'язково це зроблю. Я дотримуюсь, раз ви вже нас називаєте нацистами, дотримуюсь доктрини Адольфа Ейхмана і зроблю все, що від мене залежить для того, щоб ні ви, ні ваші діти ніколи не жили на цій землі. Для того, щоб ви відчули, як воно, коли вмирають ні в чому не винні цивільні люди. Для того, щоб ви відчули весь біль і страждання, коли ви говорите, а ми не починали війни, це все Путін. Ми не хотіли цієї війни. Ми теж її не хотіли, але тепер ви мусите розуміти, що тут йдеться про перемогу українського народу, а не мир. Нам потрібна перемога. І якщо для цього доведеться вирізати всі ваші сім'ї, я буду одним із перших, хто це зробить. Слава нації! І сподіваємось, що такої нації, як Росія і росіяни, ніколи більше не залишиться на цій землі. Тому що це просто виродки, які засмічують цю землю. Якщо в українців є можливість, що вони зараз, в принципі, роблять, трощити, різати, вбивати, душити, 
Media tried relentlessly to hide any mention of Ukrainian Nazis. Some, like Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, even claims that there are no Nazis in Ukraine. Despite their attempts, they proved to be of no avail when in nearly every publicized photo of the Ukrainian army at the beginning of the invasion, Nazi emblems and insignia were spotted. Now the media is running to the defense of Nazis, claiming they're not as bad as Hitler's Nazis, or that they may be Nazis, but Russia is worse. Quick note, Nazism and Nazi paramilitaries like the ones fighting in Ukraine have been banned in Russia and Belarus. This doesn't wipe away their existence, but they don't even have a fraction of the power that they do in Ukraine. Nonetheless, the Western populations have been long propagandized to unwaveringly support Ukraine and denounce Russia. And any other countering arguments other than blind loyalty to Zelensky are met with immediate accusations of being a Russian agent or Russian propagandized. Even in Europe, Russian media was immediately banned and citizens were threatened with prosecution if they expressed support for the Russian invasion. So much for the liberal democracy where we all get to vote and express our opinions. But let's ask, how is Ukraine a Nazi country? Well, if the far right lost votes in the 2019 election, if the president is a Jewish Zionist who lost family in the Holocaust, and most Ukrainians wouldn't consider themselves Nazis or outright supporters of Nazi groups, then they can't be a Nazi state, and this is all Russian disinformation, right? Dead wrong. While it is true that the Svoboda party did lose seats in parliament, by no means did Nazis loot their overt power that they had following the 2014 coup with the latest election. As stated before, Ukrainian Nazis along the front lines of the Civil War opposed the Minsk Accords for Peace and initiated their own operation, No Capitulation, and escalated attacks in Zolot after Zelensky's departure to once again break the ceasefire and march Ukraine further into war. But let's examine the role of neo-Nazis in Ukrainian affairs. In 2013, the neo-Nazi paramilitary group known as the Right Sector was formed by Dmitry Yarosh. Right Sector got started with ample funding from Igor Kolomoisky. Yarosh and fellow neo-Nazi Borislav Bereza of Right Sector both won seats in Ukrainian parliament. Later in 2015, Yarosh was appointed as the military advisor to Viktor Mushchenko of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. Likewise, in 2014, notorious neo-Nazi Andrei Biletsky formed the Azov Battalion, which was funded by Kolomoisky. Biletsky had a lifetime of neo-Nazi activity, being raised by Ukrainian upper-class rabid nationalists and having been in many neo-Nazi groups, including Right Sector East, before creating the Azov Battalion. Many liberals will say that Azov is just a small minority, which is untrue. Their numbers are in the thousands, and they're also leading the Ukrainian armed forces and have been for years. They were incorporated into the Ukrainian armed forces as the Azov Regiment, and then in 2015, the Ukrainian Interior Minister Arsen Avakov announced that the Azov Regiment would be among the first units to be trained by the United States Army troops in the Operation Fearless Guardian training mission. Next, we have C-14, which was the former youth wing of the neo-Nazi Svoboda Party, later splitting off as its own paramilitary group based in Kyiv. In 2018, they signed an agreement with the Kyiv Municipal Police to patrol as vigilantes. Additionally, the group has continuously received funding from the Ukrainian state as a part of the National Patriotic Education. C-14 led a pogrom against a Roma encampment in Lysogora, even going so far as to burn it down. <laughs> Leader of C-14, Yeheren Karas, stated that the Ukrainian security service would give intel on pro-Russian or pro-Donbass rallies to C-14 
and right sector. Of course, with the intent for these neo-Nazis to provoke and attack them. Garas even goes so far as to state that, in general, deputies of all factions, the National Guard, the Security Service of Ukraine, and the Ministry of Internal Affairs work for us. You can joke like that. That is a direct quote. Garas has also stated that despite the U.S. State Department claiming that only 10% of Maidan supporters were outright neo-Nazis, Maidan would not have been a successful coup without them. Going on to say that Maidan would have been a gay parade without the neo-Nazis. Just to add, C-14 is named after the American Nazis' 14 words, which go as, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. In 2018, while the central Ukrainian Cherkasy city council members were about to pass their city's new budget, a far-right nationalist group known as the National Brigade stormed the meeting and forced the council members to pass a new budget in their favor, forcing the council members to go against what they were elected to do. But okay, that was before 2019. So that stopped, right? Well, in 2019, in the eastern city of Zalot, Zelensky sat down with Azov and right sector leaders to talk about the future of the war on Donbass. As mentioned before, he urged the neo-Nazis to not instigate and to lay down arms. But they refused and he backed down. Zelensky has also referred to Bandera as a cool guy, despite having family who were killed in the Holocaust. Then we have Zelensky's former Prime Minister Oleksiy Hancharuk and his own Minister of Veteran Affairs, who gave a speech at the C-14 Organized Veteran Strong concert lined up with openly neo-Nazi bands. But this is all passed off as simple patriotism. In November of 2021, U.S. Undersecretary of State Victoria Nuland recommended to President Zelensky to appoint the self-proclaimed Nazi Dmitry Yarosh from right sector once again to be an advisor, this time to Valery Zaluzhny as the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces. Then, as advisor, Yarosh promised to lead the de-Russification of Ukraine. Of course, a call for extermination in Donbass where large swaths of the population are ethnic Russians. Even as recent as December of 2021, just months before the war started, Zelensky awarded the right sector soldier Dmitry Katsubailo the Hero of Ukraine Award. In Donbass, this man is accused of committing crimes against humanity under the nom de guerre of da Vinci, and he has made jokes about feeding off of the bones of Russian-speaking children. Then, in January of 2021, Zelensky's chief of Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council, Oleksiy Danilov, claimed that any fulfillment of the Minsk agreements would mean the country's destruction. At every point of possible peace negotiations, the Ukrainian state has backed down and led aggression. And just days after the invasion commenced, Zelensky chose to appoint Maxim Marchenko of the neo-Nazi Idar Battalion as governor of Odessa, while Azov Battalion swarmed the city to guard it from Russian troops taking the other side of the Black Sea. But Nazism in Ukraine isn't just political. It invades social life too. Ukraine even celebrates war criminals and Nazi collaborators by giving them special commemoration through holidays. Banning May 9th, which is Victory Day for when the Soviet Union took Berlin and defeated German Nazis, Ukraine replaced the holiday with the Heroes Day every May 23rd, which commemorates the organization of Ukrainian nationalists' second gathering. Going even further, in 2018, the Ukrainian parliament designated January 1st as a day to remember Stepan Bandera, as January 1st is his birthday. However, International Women's Day marches, pro-LGBTQ marches, 
anti-war and anti-fascist rallies get attacked routinely and dispersed by Ukrainian far-right militias while Ukrainian and local authorities just watch. Such as the case when anti-war activist Taras Serihinko was stabbed by a C-14 member, but nobody was arrested for the crime. Ukrainian education has also been crucial in propagandizing generations after the dissolution of the USSR. One book in particular, The History of Ukraine for Children by Anton Lotoki, is full of historical revisionism and fierce anti-Russian propaganda, which is taught to Ukrainian children as though it is fact. Ukrainian children are taught that they are the victims of Russian colonization, first by the Tsar, then by the Soviet Union, and later by Vladimir Putin. Although it is absolutely true, Ukrainians were brutally oppressed under the Tsar and other empires, Tsardom ended over a hundred years ago. They are taught that the Ukrainian language and cultural celebrations were banned in the USSR. This is blatantly false. The USSR had a policy of colonization or indigenization, where in fact, native languages were promoted and schools were built to teach Ukrainian. Ukrainians were promoted to positions of power, two Ukrainians going on to become the general secretaries of the entire Soviet Union. Additionally, the Soviet Union was governed by a Soviet on nationalities. They had representatives of various ethnic groups of the USSR to quite literally represent the ethnic groups to make policies for the benefit. The Ukrainian intelligentsia has been using historical revisionism in their idea of the Ukrainian question since 1908 with the Young Ukraine Movement, whose legacy now exists in Ukrainian education. Ukrainian youth are not taught about Ukrainian Bolsheviks like Mykola Shchors or that Ukraine had the second highest number of Bolsheviks in what became the USSR. Instead, they are taught that the Bolsheviks invaded and forced socialism upon them. Of course, this narrative sounds very novel. Stand up for the colonized against the aggressive settlers. However, this is not based on historical fact, but Ukrainian nationalist propaganda. This is how you create an entire country of otherwise apolitical people to harbor nationalist lies as fact. The Open Society Foundation opened its offices in Kiev in 1990, but has been actively working with the Ukrainian government since 1991, advising the Ukrainian Ministry of Education and Sciences for reform policies in education. While there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to reform education, sometimes it is necessary, the Open Society Foundation has funded right-wing groups in the global south for decades, and they're not the only Western NGO to be involved. Smart Education is also helping Ukraine with their new Ukraine school project in which the National Patriotic Education Project, which was implemented in 2015, takes a major role in education. The National Patriotic Education Project has transformed Ukrainian education to include more reactionary patriotic education and additionally funds neo-Nazi groups like C-14 to operate. This is a cause for concern. Political indoctrination starts young for Ukrainians. The PLAS National Scouting Organization is the largest scouting organization in Ukraine and they operate in several countries, owning many properties even on 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. It was started in the Austro-Hungarian controlled West Ukraine, working closely with the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. They recruited and educated many young Ukrainian boys that would go on to lead Nazi groups, like their most notable member, Stepan Bandera, leader of the OUN. And although fairly new, Azov Battalion has also set up their own kids' summer camp called Camp Azov, where they train and indoctrinate kids as young as seven years old, with the idea that they will go on to join the Azov Battalion. And as in many cases, we must talk about the role of the Catholic Greek Church in Ukraine in abetting Ukrainian nationalism. All throughout Eastern Europe, particularly in Poland, Romania, and Ukraine, 
Catholicism is deeply tied to nationalist and far-right movements in a sort of clerical cultural war against the Orthodox Church and Islamic influence. Although the movement to create an ethno-religious national identity ultimately failed in Ukraine, its remnants are still prominent in Western Ukraine. The roots of Catholicism and Ukrainian nationalism can be traced back to 1648 with the Cossack revolts where thousands of Jews were murdered, later again reviving in the 30s and 40s when the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church was involved in anti-communist activities. The Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church had been a prominent albeit more reformist force that sought to pursue a Ukrainian nationalist state that at times clashed with the organization of Ukrainian nationalists who were much more violent. However, the two were unified in their mission of what they wanted Ukraine to be, just different methods on how to achieve this. Even the Ukrainian autocephalous Orthodox Church, created in 1921 by the Soviets, soon became a bastion for Ukrainian nationalists. Often, anti-communists will cite communist crackdowns of religious institutions, but there's no context given as to why. It is the political actions that religious institutions take that communists take gripe with, not the peace-loving give-back-to-the-poor elements. Today, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church also makes its comeback in attempting to further and support Ukrainian nationalism to create their perfect, pure Ukrainian state. And this is not to slander Catholicism, as we have seen Catholicism used for progressive purposes such as liberation theory in Latin America, but it is a fact of the matter that as an institution, Catholicism in Ukraine is another tool to further Ukrainian far-right nationalism. It would take an entire separate piece to discuss at length the role that Nazis have in Ukraine, or historical revisionism in education as subversive as it is, but these are some of the highlights. The reality is, is that Ukrainian Nazis are extremely influential in the country's political and economic affairs, it matters little that they're a minority. The 1% minority in every capitalist country makes decisions over the country's affairs, and there are millions who are against their governments in Ukraine. This is why we say Ukraine's government does not represent its people, and the Nazis are holding their country hostage. And finally, to address liberal talking points, Zelensky being Jewish means nothing to the existence of Nazis in Ukraine. Golomoysky is also Jewish, and he openly funds groups that openly hate Jews. Likewise, to say that Zelensky can't be a Nazi enabler because he lost family in the Holocaust, but to compare Putin to Hitler, who also has family lost during the Holocaust, is hypocritical. Yes. Millions of Russians also died in concentration camps. And we cannot reduce Nazism to simply anti-Semitism. Nazism is right-wing ultra-nationalism. Jewish people happen to be one of the many groups that are considered outsiders to the Ukrainian Nazis' idea of their nation, but by no means are they the only group or the sole qualifier if someone is a Nazi or not. For Ukrainian nationalists, Jewish people are not the priority. Russians are. This can be traced back to the German and then the later US funding and training of Banderists and other neo-Nazi groups to be geared against the Soviet Union and then Russians, harping on their idea of a pure Ukrainian state to destabilize the USSR. So it entirely does not make sense to the question of Ukrainian Nazism to focus on Jews, but rather Russians. Zelensky is not the same politically as Andrei Belitsky or Dmitry Yarosh, but it is to point out that he went from promising peace with Russia and Donbass to making alliances with the Ukrainian far right. He's a liberal who has his hands tied by Washington and the Nazis at home, both who have thwarted his and Putin's attempts at reconciliation. This is why even now, peace negotiations have failed at every turn, because Zelensky's life quite literally depends on him being a stooge and sadly, the US will wage its war on Russia through Ukraine. They will fight until the last Ukrainian. The West promised a dream to Ukraine that it never intended to make good on. Your fight is our fight. 2017 will be the year of offense. 
All of us will go back to Washington and we will push the case against Russia. Ми всі повернемося до Вашингтону і ми будемо відстоювати санкції проти Росії. Enough of a Russian aggression. It is time for them to pay a heavier price. They wanted only to achieve their goal in probing Russia into war with Ukraine and destabilize Russia. Ukrainians have been used as cannon fodder for U.S. financial gains. So what does the U.S. have to gain from this war? The answer is hegemony. U.S. influence over Europe has declined under the Trump administration, with Germany going so far as to build the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would have made it so that 80% of Europe's gas would be Russian. Ukraine and Russia share borders, and the domestic and foreign affairs of each country inadvertently affect one another. For the United States, the conflict is simply a ploy for more influence over Europe, an extension of the Marshall Plan. This is a war that deepens the pockets of the Bidens and the Newlands, while the rest of the Ukrainian people have to suffer the consequences. But worst of all, Ukrainians have been held hostage and led to war by the most vile populations among them. Ukrainians once liberated Auschwitz and fought Nazis off of their territory, and they will have to do it once more to save their country. The most innocent of the war, the children, the people who just want to live peaceful and prosperous lives are the ones most hurt by this war. As stated by the Party of Communists USA, we don't support war, but an anti-fascist war is a just war for lasting peace. The lives of Donbass civilians do not matter any less than the lives of Ukrainian civilians. Both do not deserve to die for the crimes of fascists. Another aspect of Ukraine's war on Donbass is that while most Ukrainians do see Donbass as Ukrainians, the Nazis fighting there do not. Unfortunately, Ukrainian liberals in Western Europe and the Americas are not on the front lines of the war. The neo-Nazis are, and they are committing and have been committing atrocities against the Donbass people in their plan of de-Russification. As the war continues to unfold, I'm sure we'll find out more about U.S.'s activities in Ukraine and what the Ukrainian Nazis were doing to Donbass civilians and soldiers. I fear what may exist in those biolabs, but we must not take all news at face value. We must ask critical questions and wait for investigations to be done. When we see things such as the massacre in Busha and the hospitals in Mariupol. And finally, we should stand with Ukraine. We should stand with Ukraine in ridding it of Nazism and the US imperialism that has swept over the nation, plundering the lives of Ukrainian people and this stain on their history. May this be the last time Nazis get to hurt the Ukrainian people any longer. As the anti-fascists who witnessed the horrific acts in Odessa say, we must never forget and never forgive. And we must never forgive not only those who whitewashed fascist violence, but those who called on us to support them. They ignored the cries of Donbass civilians for eight years and now think they have the moral authority to tell us which side to support. We support the interests of the international working class, always, and history will absolve us. There is an international growth of Nazism, not just in Ukraine. Wherever Nazism grows, it is an international crisis. Thank you for watching this video. Drop a like and subscribe to Midwestern Marx and the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Check out MidwesternMarx.com for the latest articles with Marxist perspectives. If you're interested in Marxist theory, follow the PSMLS to catch live classes every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Follow the school on Instagram and Twitter, and don't forget to keep your notifications on for Midwestern Marks videos. Hope to catch you in class. Until next time.